When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. You're listening to a clip of Summer Love by Theo's Loose Hinges from Columbus, Ohio. Theo's is our featured Ohio musical artist tonight. So hang out with us to the end of the podcast. We'll tell you all about him and let you listen to that entire song. But right now, let's throw another log on the fire, campers. Let's dig up a new Ohio mystery. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with me is our award-winning journalist, Paula Schleiss, who spent 30 years telling these kinds of stories for the Acker Beacon Journal. Hi, everybody. So glad you could join us today. Since you're here, we've planned a special field trip. We're going to go to the most famous home run in baseball history. So come on, jump in my time machine. Come with me right now to the year 1932. We've got tickets to the third game of the World Series in Chicago's Wrigley Field. I hope you can hear me. The roar in this stadium is deafening. The Chicago Cubs are playing the New York Yankees, a legendary team stocked with baseball gods. Oh look, here comes one of them now, Babe Ruth. Even at the age of 37, arguably the best player on the face of the planet. He's strolling to the plate. Good, good, we're just in time. The scoreboard says it's the fifth inning. The game is tied four to four. The Cubs have just clawed their way back to even after giving the Yankees an early lead. Now the Cubbies and the fans, they have been heckling Babe Ruth mercilessly the entire game. And Ruth is mad. Fans spat on his wife. They threw vegetables and fruit at him. He thought he'd had a thick skin, but man is he sore. They've been taunting him since he got off the team bus, and he sure looks determined to take the wind out of the windy city. There he is, getting into a stance. Here comes the pitch. Nope, Ruth doesn't like the look of it. He lets that one go. Strike one, the umpire says. Strike one, Ruth confirms out loud, then extends his arm in front of him, index finger pointing out in the general direction of the pitcher. 
Okay, Ruth is settling into the batter's box. Here comes the next pitch. Whoa, lets it sail over the plate. Strike two, the umpire roars. Again, Ruth raises his arm in front of him, this time two fingers clearly extended. Here comes the third pitch. It's a curveball. Ruth catches it and sends it out 440 feet past the scoreboard and onto Sheffield Avenue. Broadcaster Tom Manning is shouting. The ball is going, going, going high into the center field stands, and it's a home run. As Ruth runs the bases, he makes more gestures at the fans and at the Cubs' dugout. His exuberant teammates meet him as he returns to home plate. Well, the Yankees, they're going to go on to win that game. And newspapers the next day will share all the exciting details. But one newspaper account stands out. It was written by Joe Williams of the New York Telegram, whose columns were syndicated nationally. And Joe Williams interpreted something differently than anyone else. Joe said when Babe motioned right before his home run, he was calling his shot. He was pointing to the centerfield bleachers right where he intended to send that home run a second later. Wait, what? In the years since that game, the event known as Babe Ruth's called shot has become one of the most famous moments in baseball history. It is also one of baseball's biggest controversies. Was Babe simply gesturing that he'd taken a second strike? Or was the legendary slugger really predicting his home run and prophetically pointing out its path? A man who says no way was Babe calling his shot was the man who delivered that pitch. It was Ohio's own Charlie Root one of the most talented pitchers of his era, whose incredible resume will forever be in the shadow of Babe Ruth's extended arm. Why is Charlie Root so sure Babe wasn't calling his shot? Well, that's how this Babe Ruth mystery becomes an Ohio mystery. But first, we're going to go back even further to St. Patrick's Day of 1899, when German immigrants Jacob and Mary Root welcomed yet another child to their very large family. Charlie Root became the eighth of nine kids, born in Middletown, Ohio. That's a community between Cincinnati and Dayton. Charlie was a handful and grew into a real class clown. He was constantly in trouble with his teachers, and at the age of 13, After being reprimanded one too many times for his behavior, he quit school and never went back. That was fine with Charlie's dad, Jacob. He was a laborer who expected his sons would be the same. He told Charlie to go find a job now to help support the family, and he did. He had a string of jobs that included driving a grocery wagon, toiling in a box factory, and even working for a steel company. But when he wasn't working, young Charlie was most likely to be found playing baseball on vacant lots or collecting baseball cards from those tobacco packs. And after a growth spurt in his late teens, he started pitching for the factory team and then some semi-pro ball for the Middletown Eagles. 
there he earned $5 a game on Sundays back in 1919. And it was there he caught the attention of the Industrial League in Southern Ohio. The nearby Hamilton Engine Works offered him a job paying $50 a week and an additional $35 a game to pitch for their team. It was a win-win. Charlie led his team to the league championship, and in return, he was in a position to be discovered by professional scouts. When Charlie was 21 years old, he signed a professional contract to play for the St. Louis Browns. They were serious pennant contenders. At first, they feared Charlie was still too green for the big show, so he was optioned to a minor league team to prove himself. And then, in 1923, he was called up by the Browns. He made his major league debut on opening day, April 18, 1923. He was sent in for the ninth inning and retired all three batters he faced. It wasn't all smooth sailing, though. Charlie threw fastballs almost exclusively, and hitters in the league quickly figured him out. He was traded to the Los Angeles Angels, and that was kismet because it was there that he met Doc Crandall, who took Charlie under his wing and helped him add a curveball and a changeup to his tool belt. And wow, was Charlie a fast learner. He went on to win 21 games and log 322 innings that year. In 1926, the Chicago Cubs bought Charlie's contract for $30,000 and thus began his 16-year career with that club. It also happened to be the same year that Joe McCarthy, considered one of the best managers in baseball history, was hired by the Cubs. McCarthy came to put his full trust in Charlie Root, whom sports writers were calling the pitching find of the season. The now 27-year-old Charlie became the team's workhorse. He was an ace, capable of starting every fourth day and relieving when needed. In the 32 games he started that first year, he finished 21 of those games and won 18. Experts say he would have won much more if the Cubs had even an average offense. He logged 271 innings, allowing an average of fewer than three runs a game. He was called cool and graceful. The Sporting News said he had a mysterious delivery that could baffle hitters. He also got a reputation for intimidating batters. He freely pitched inside and earned the nickname Chinsky because some of the pitches would flirt near the batter's chin. In his second year, Charlie Root had one of the best seasons for a pitcher in Cubs history, leading the National League with 26 wins, 309 innings, and 48 games pitched. Sports media called him the sensation of the major leagues and the best pitcher, period. Charlie was flying high, but he wasn't flying alone. At every home game in Wrigley Field was his wife, Dorothy. Dorothy was from Middletown, Ohio, too. Back before Charlie had even played his first semi-pro game, he and Dorothy eloped to Newport, Kentucky to get married in 1918. They had two children, Della and Charlie Jr. They also attended most of Dad's games. The whole family often joined Charlie on the road as well. They became such a fixture, the Sporting News did a story on them, calling them 
baseball's ideal family. Now, Charlie had the ups and downs of a typical baseball career, some years better than others, some managers more inspiring than others. Leading up to that fateful World Series game in 1932, Cubs had replaced manager McCarthy with a strict and unpleasant fellow, Roger Hornsby. By all accounts, the team struggled under him. But late in the 1932 season, the club kicked Hornsby out and promoted first baseman Charlie Grimm. And it was like night and day. They called Grimm Jolly Charlie. And he was personable and tactful and inspiring. And the Cubs, as well as Charlie Root, began to thrive again. Under manager Grimm, the team won 26 of the next 32 games, and Root pitched the best ball of the season as they raced for the National League pennant and won it. There was one last step of the season, take on the New York Yankees in that World Series. The Cubs were overwhelmed from the start. They lost the first two games in New York, then returned to Chicago for game three. And that's where we began our story at the start of this episode. Fifth inning, score of four to four, and Babe Ruth coming up to bat and blistering that ball into center field. In 1948, Charlie Root was asked about that pitch by a reporter, and he said, Ruth most certainly did not call his home run in that game. I ought to know. I was there. Charlie said when Ruth raised his arm and pointed one finger the first time, that he yelled out, that's only one strike. After the second pitch was called a strike and Ruth raised his hand with two fingers, it was clear to him that Ruth was simply acknowledging the second strike just as he had with the first. And here's what Charlie Root offered as evidence that Babe Ruth was not preordaining his home run. Because if he was... If it was clear to Charlie Root and the Cubbies and their fans that the great Babe Ruth had just mocked them by pointing to the bleachers, Charlie would have taught the legend a lesson. In Charlie's words, I'd have put one in his ear and knocked him on his ass. Anyway, it was a bad game for Charlie. After Ruth's home run, Lou Gehrig was up next and he made his second home run before they pulled Charlie off the mound. He ended the game with the unfortunate distinction of being the first pitcher in World Series history to surrender four home runs in a game. The Yankees won 7-5 to five and collected the World Series trophy the next day after sweeping the Cubs. So what did others have to say about the called shot? Ruth was certainly capable of making promises and keeping them. He once mailed a sick child a baseball with a message, I'll knock a homer for you on Wednesday. Then he went out and hit three. And at least back in 1932, it was hard to argue against it. Babe Ruth was larger than life, one of the biggest American celebrities. He faced a hostile crowd in that World Series, and he fought back the best way he knew how. Everyone wanted that story to be true. And there were some eyewitnesses that backed up the claim. Some of Ruth's teammates and even Wrigley PA announcer Pat Piper said, yep, he called it. 
But these claims came after that story written by journalist Joe Williams. Nobody had been referring to the called shot before then. Certainly not the other reporters. Is it possible that so many experienced sports reporters could have just watched one of the biggest moments in baseball history and missed it? And then there's Babe Ruth himself. The year after that game, he gave an interview in which he said, and here's a quote, Hell no, it isn't a fact. Only a damned fool would have done a thing like that. Now, kid, you know damn well I wasn't pointing anywhere. If I had done that, Root would have stuck the ball in my ear. I never knew anybody who could tell you ahead of time where he was going to hit a baseball. When I get to be that kind of fool, they'll put me in the booby hatch. But Babe's story changed constantly, often, and eventually it became impossible to get a straight answer out of him. He was a consummate showman, and it certainly seemed like there were times he was okay with the story that history wanted to write for him. Now, I've tried to describe the event here for you, but you don't have to take my word for it. There are two amateur films from that game, one that came to light just 20 years ago, and you can find them on the internet and make up your own mind. But that physical evidence hasn't settled the controversy. People still see what they want to see. As for Charlie, his career continued. He had a few more years as a starter, then many more years as a valuable and reliable reliever. His fastball was no longer a threat, but the 36-year-old developed a pretty hard knuckleball that transformed him into a wily pitcher. Newspapers started calling him Grandpappy. Teammates affectionately called him Old Bear. Charlie helped lead the Cubs to four World Series, but they lost all four. Historians say it's inexplicable that Charlie Root's worst games seem to come on baseball's biggest stage. In his World Series appearances, Charlie was winless, lost three, and collected an ERA of 6.45. Root was 42 years old when he retired. His 605 appearances as a Cub led the franchise by a wide margin. And when experts even today list the best pitchers in Chicago Cubs history, Charlie was in the top three or four. One biographer, Joseph E. Bennett, said, Root was one of the fiercest competitors the game ever knew. His cigar-chomping, no-nonsense visage was one of the most intimidating tools in his baseball arsenal. After many years as a player, Charlie went on to manage minor league ball teams, including a stint with the Columbus, Ohio Redbirds, an affiliate of the Cardinals, in 1945-1946. In the 50s, he became the pitching coach for his beloved Cubbies and then was hired as a coach for the Milwaukee Braves. There, he got to experience what it was like to be on the winning side when the Braves beat the Yankees in the 1957 World Series. But to everyone's surprise, Charlie was among three coaches who were fired by the Braves just after taking baseball's top prize. Charlie said he was puzzled by the move, but he figured it was just a new manager wanting to pick his own coaching staff. 
Charlie moved on to an entirely new phase of his life. Financially, he'd done well, very well. He'd been one of the highest paid players back in the 30s, and he invested wisely. And in retirement, he became a successful cattle rancher. He and Dorothy settled on a 1,000-acre ranch called Diamond R Ranch, southeast of San Francisco. He died near there on November 5, 1970, at the age of 71, after an extended illness. According to his daughter Della, two days before his death, he told her, I gave my life to baseball, and I'll only be remembered for something that never happened. Charlie was cremated, and his ashes were scattered. Before we go further, I want to note that much of the research in this story is from baseball writer Gregory H. Wolf, whose biography on Root has appeared in at least a couple of compilations and is also available on the Internet. Steve, how much of this story did you know? You are a huge baseball fan, I know. I always thought the shot was, you know, called. I didn't know about the doing the one strike, the two strike point. But I'll tell you what. I don't think that if Babe Ruth did make that point, that Root would have put it in the air, like he said. Because if I'm a pitcher and some batter is pointing at me one strike and pointing at me two strikes, I'm going to put it in their air then. But wait. If you think that he's mocking you by pointing to the bleachers, are you going to give him a pitch that he can hit? Well, it's Babe Ruth. So what I'm going to do is if he's pointing at me, he's already kind of mocking me. Even if he's pointing at me going one strike, two strike, he's still pointing at me. I'm going to put it in his air anyway. And you know what? At least he, you know, you're giving him the pass to first base. He's not going to hit a home run off you. Well, I guess that's why this is a controversy that hasn't died. Even after all of these years and actual video of the event, people still follow both sides of this. Right. And Lou Gehrig said that he pointed. And Lou Gehrig seemed to be a pretty honest person. So He did. Very well respected. Well, this is part of the program where we bring on board an Ohio Mystery listener to play Armchair Detective. A news story gets shared by a friend on social media, or you catch a tweet that really makes your blood boil. But how do you separate fact from fiction? That's the premise behind Disinformation, a 10-part series from Evergreen Podcasts and Emergent Risk International coming this fall. Tune in to Disinformation wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, don't believe everything you read. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the allied powers go too far? in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, 
please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon. Well, joining us tonight, we have a very special guest, uh, armchair detective, Mark Bona from Cleveland.com. Hi, Mark. How are you? How are you doing, Paula? I'm doing great. Mark is not only a journalist, but he is an author. Hey, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, you're right. I wrote a book a couple years ago called The Game Changer. It's an all-ages mystery, so that's kind of in in your wheelhouse. Uh, about a woman who covers a professional football team in in Cleveland, and uh, she discovers kind of a mysterious point about a, a star player, and she has to figure out what it is. I'm also writing two other books right now, uh, Cleveland Sports History, Hidden Gems. Uh, so these are kind of under-the-radar stories, and I'm also doing a young adult's biography on famous athletes and coaches and and what books they read as as kids and motivational help they can they can offer. But but my day job is I'm a features writer for Cleveland.com, as you said, and and I have uh, what I've been told is the world's greatest. I write about beer, food, wine, restaurants, food, sports entertainment, and sports history. So I'm I'm happy. <laughs> you have the best of all worlds. <laughs> that is a win, 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 win. <laughs> Absolutely. Hey, are those books, are they coming out next year? They are coming out next year. I don't know when. I gave myself a deadline with two different publishers this December. So hopefully they'll be in good shape and they'll get through the editing process and they'll be published. Awesome. Well, let's talk baseball today. Among your very many topics, let's narrow it down to baseball. And uh, Charlie Root and the Babe Ruth called shot. Now, is this a story that you have looked at before? I mean, were you aware of this debate? I've been aware of this for many, many years since I was a, a child. My parents are originally from New York. My father grew up a Yankees fan. My mother grew up a, Dodger, a Brooklyn Dodgers fan. So I heard about a lot of baseball history when I was a kid. I played the game. I read about it. I've written about it. So I really enjoy baseball history, and it started at an early age. But it really was only in the last 15 or 20 years when you started to hear more about the controversy and whether he actually did it. So I I dug in and read a bit more. I know you've read quite a bit, and it really is an absolutely fascinating topic. It is. You know, I have always known about the cold shot, but I didn't even know it was in question until this uh, story was suggested to me. And I went in, I found the videos. I assume you've watched the videos. There are a couple of them. We're very fortunate to have them was just discovered like in the last couple of decades. So and that was an angle they didn't have before. So where do you fall in on this debate? Having done some research and seen that video, what do you think? You know, I think it's it's fascinating because uh, I had just in in preparation for this, I finished reading a, a children's book called Babe and Me. A man named Dave uh, Dan Gutman wrote a book about uh, time travel. A boy and his father go back in time to see the called shot, and 
The author says that this is obviously it's historical fiction, but all the, the characters in the book were real. And he did a lot of research, particularly on Ruth and the called shot itself. And what I thought was fascinating in the addendum of the book, he makes an, a point of listing the various players involved and, and from writers to players to other people and what they thought. And a lot of the Yankees said he did call it. A lot of the Cubs said he didn't call it. A lot of people said he was pointing at the dugout, as you know, really all across the, the board. What I was was really interested in are a couple of people I think people forget about. Roy Van Graflin and Gabby Hartnett. Van Graflin was the home plate umpire and Hartnett was the catcher. Hartnett had his back turned. He said, no, he didn't call it. He was just pointing at the pitcher. But when you see the videos, the catcher is turned a bit. So he really... I, you could take that with a grain of salt or two. Van Graflin swore that he actually did call the shot. And then the, there, there actually is a third person involved. People sometimes forget uh, Lou Gehrig was on deck. Lou Gehrig was obviously a very good hitter. He ended up hitting a home run right after Ruth. He, um, he said, yes, Ruth called the shot. So those three people were right there. So I was fascinated by the split split opinions on all of this. And I was also fascinated by the accompanying history that was involved here. People forget that Franklin Roosevelt threw out the first pitch in this game. He was there a very pivotal time in American history. That same year, Hitler took control in, in Germany. Uh, Roosevelt was was out and about. Uh, you had a, It was just absolutely amazing. You had the Great Depression going on. And then a little factoid that came out a few years ago that blew me away. You know, very few people are alive on the planet right now to say they were at this game. But one man who was there, who just died a year ago, was John Paul Stevens, the Supreme Court Justice. And I was fascinated by that. And he also went to a 2016 game between the Cubs and the Indians in the World Series. So I love the history. I've read a lot about it. And by the way, there'll be a there's an interesting postscript we'll get to in a second that I was I was fascinated by because you really dug into uh, Charlie Root, the pitcher, his backstory. I would say when you look at everything, I'm going to say he did not call it. And I think kind of a, one of the reasons I say that is Mark Koenig was a played for the Cubs, but he was a friend of Ruth's and he had played for the Yankees and they were buddies. But Koenig made an interesting point and he said, you know, he was pointing to where he already hit one. But think about it. He had two strikes on him. Even Babe Ruth would have been crazy to call a shot at that point. And by the way, Ruth went back and forth on this issue. You kind of almost have to discount what he said. Sometimes he said he, he called the shot. Sometimes he said he didn't. And the other thing about Ruth, from what I've read, he was obviously one of the greatest, if not the greatest showman that baseball has ever had. But I don't recognize the fact, I don't think, I don't recall reading too much about him being a showboat. And I do think those are two different things. He was a showman, larger than life. He loved children. He was always out and about. People swarmed to him. Women loved him, all of that. But he wasn't a type of person to show up the, the other team. So for those reasons and for the fact, and I think you had read this too, that Charlie Root's daughter had said that uh, in a very serious moment, she said, his fa her father turned to her and said, I gave my life to baseball and I'll always be remembered for something that never happened. So I think based on all of that, I think it's obviously very difficult, but I would say he did not call did not call the shot. So what about you, Paula? Where do you stand with this? 
Well, there are a couple of things that really stood out to me. One was the simple statement that Charlie Root himself made as evidence, and that being, if he had called his shot, I would have beamed him in the head. And that impressed me because I thought, well, of course, why would you throw him a pitch, you know, a decent pitch to hit if he had just done something, you know, offensive? And, you know, as much as you know about how, you know, modern day baseball players would act today, you know, what do you think would be the response of a typical pitcher today if somebody had pointed at the bleachers and suggested they were going to be hitting a home run? How would they how would a pitcher react? Great question. I think you're 100 percent right. I think normally I think even today a pitcher would have been would have been the batter. In a World Series situation, though, I'm thinking he would have been throwing him junk, uh, all sorts of curveballs, sliders, anything, but nothing. He would be, as they say, trying to paint the black, that black edge of the paint. He would not want to give him anything near the heart of the plate to to throw. So I I agree with you 100 percent on that. Babe Ruth pointed two pitches in a row. The first time he pointed was after strike one. And he has an index finger extended. The second time, after strike two, he has two fingers extended. If he hadn't pointed at all after that first one, then this argument wouldn't work. But the fact that you see one finger and then two finger after strike one and strike two doesn't seem to me to be I'm pointing at the bleachers. There's something going on there with him counting the strikes. I don't know why he would be counting the strikes. You know, I'm not sure why you would emphasize that. Um, But Babe himself, you're right, he went back and forth, and it's hard to know, you know, what he really thought. But he did, at a couple of points, saying, I was just saying, that's only one, that's only two, you know, pointing out that he still had an opportunity. Yeah, that's a good point, because from a lot of what I read, everyone says, uh, all the accounts said, the Cubs bench was really riding him hard. And I think he wasn't the type of guy who was just going to stand there. He was going to do something. So maybe that was his some odd braggadocio way of saying that's one, that's two. But you're right. I don't know why you would do that. But in the in the heat of the moment, you know, who knows what was going through his mind? Yeah, absolutely. You know, when I read some of these really old um, sports stories from, you know, the 20s, the 30s, I really wonder what celebrity was like then compared to now. You know, Babe said coming into this series, you know, fans spit on his wife. They dogged him. You know, he I almost had the impression that he had a fear for his safety at the same time. He was probably one of the biggest celebrities in the world. And I'm just wondering, is it is the celebrity then as comparable as it as it is today? Or did they face something different back then? That's an excellent question. And it's difficult to answer because on, on one hand, these guys were mostly anonymous because you only had newspapers on occasion getting a couple of photographs here and there. That was it. No TV. Radio wouldn't help with the visuals. Clearly pre-internet. Even baseball cards were in their infancy and they weren't they weren't all over the place. So a lot of these guys could be anonymous. And they also were thought of as regular guys because most of them 
had to have another job. And they were just thought of as as regular guys. Now, Ruth was in a different class. Ruth was making uh, at, at his, I believe, one of the highest salaries he had would be considered a lot of money even today. Eighty thousand dollars is is a fair amount of money. But back then he was spending that like uh, I mean, he didn't have to think about money and budgets or anything else. It was just I think at one time he quipped he was making more Somebody pointed out he was making more money than the president of the United States. And without missing a beat, he said, well, I, you know, I had a better year than the president type of thing. So it's a good question, though, because they were looked at on a lofty level on one hand, because it was just such a neat thing. They were professional athletes and all of that. But on the other hand, they did have to most of them had to work in the in the offseason. They did not have lucrative endorsement contracts only. And to this day, really, only star players do. But the whole concept of celebrity is so different now with because of really because of social media. So it's a it's an interesting question to ask. In some ways, I think the sports icons of that era were even if they weren't recognizable in some ways, they were bigger than today because there was less entertainment competing for people's attention. If you wanted to be entertained, you went to a baseball game. You didn't sit home and play video games. You didn't sit home and watch TV. But these guys became gods for a reason. And I think they were legends in their own time. And it, it's one of the reasons why I'm kind of heartbroken for Charlie Root, because if you look up his statistics and you look up what people say about him, he truly he was an ace. He was truly one of the best the Cubs had ever had to offer. Honestly, I had never heard of him. I'm not a big, you know, baseball historian, so not that I would, but he's certainly not somebody that ever comes up in the same vein as Babe Ruth. I do just feel kind of heartbroken that he told his daughter, as you said, I devoted my life to this. And when people bring up my name, it's going to be associated with something that never happened. Had you heard of Charlie Root? I mean, among people who know baseball, is he rightfully remembered? I, I guess not. And you you bring up exactly why he's not rightfully remembered. That quote is a pretty salient quote, because when you look at his numbers, he was a very, very good, uh, good pitcher. He has a lot of wins that he racked up. And he was just someone who one thing happened and in, in to, to give an analogy here, Bill Buckner was remembered for many years in 1986 for a ball that went through his legs that prevented the Boston Red Sox from going to the World Series. He also had a tremendous career, but for years he had to get past that. That was a different era. There was a lot of TV, clearly pre-internet, but a ton of TV. Now it lives online all the time. So I think Root is unfairly targeted, maybe too hard of a word, but he is unfairly remembered uh, for just this one pitch, but he did a lot more, won a lot of games, and uh, and was was helping the Cubs at a uh, at a crucial time. I was glad to see he finally made it to a World Series. As a player, he went four times, did not do well as a player, but as a coach for Milwaukee, he finally got to experience what it was like to participate in a World Series. So I was glad to see that, and I was always glad to see like he like didn't end his life in poverty or something. Apparently, he was very financially astute, turned out to have a lot of money, went into cattle ranching, and uh, ended up having a a pretty good life in retirement. So good. I'm glad he got that at least. Yeah, that is nice to hear. A lot of these guys ended up poor, or they, a lot of them, especially in that era, were, were really alcoholics. I mean, they were 
uh, even especially earlier, they were, I think, using they were self-medicating because the game was was a lot tougher and they were just going out. Games were all day games. And then you'd go out at night and and, uh, and corrals and drink. And it wasn't it wasn't good. Now you have guys with personal nutritionists and and all of that. So it's kind of. Uh, the game has evolved more than almost anything in American history. It's a different game. Well, if nothing else, hopefully tonight we have uh, reminded some people of Charlie Root from Ohio and his uh, great contribution not being the pitch to Babe Ruth, <laughs> but hey, Paul, there are many I, other I, reasons. Go I ahead. Say this. There was one interesting postscript to all of this that I was fascinated by. So, you know, you, in a sense, are we're traveling back in time. Uh, and you tied in uh, this, and, and this was interesting. I did not know that Charlie Root was uh, was an Ohio native from from Middletown, Ohio. And so, I want to fast forward this and kick it to uh, 2016 and talk briefly about something that ties to to uh, to the 1932 called shot in a way. In 2016, the Cubs and Indians faced each other in the World Series. And the Cubs had a player named Kyle Schwarber, who at the very beginning of the year had played in two games in the regular season. And then he tore his knee up. He he uh, he tore his lateral collateral ligament and his anterior cruciate ligament. That's I mean, two major injuries. He goes into rehab and he's gone for the rest of the year. At the end of the season, during the championships, during the postseason, when the Cubs were going for the World Series, Kyle Schwarber was in a fall instructional league in Arizona. And for a reason I'm not really sure why, the Cubs decided to put him on the World Series roster. He gets in. He can't even play defense. He's in only as a as a designated hitter. He's hobbling around, really. And he proceeds to have this unbelievable, amazing World Series. Really hurts the Indians. He's a key factor as to why the Cubs won that series. Of course, heartbreaking for Clevelanders, seven-game series, unbelievable. So I bring all this up now because you've done a, a tremendous amount of research on, on Charlie Root and the called shot. And the reason I'm bringing this up now is would you like to take a guess where Kyle Schwarber was born and raised? Middletown? Middletown, Ohio. Really? Oh, that's funny. Another cub from Middletown. Wow. How about that? You know, we. I bet if I looked really hard, there are probably some more really good baseball mysteries out there involving uh, some baseball players from Ohio. So I'm going to look for some more. We're going to get you back next year, Mark. If uh, I'm, I will definitely come back. This was a lot of fun. I appreciate mysteries, and uh, I love history and baseball, so I'm, I'm in heaven. This was great, Paula. Oh, well, thanks for being with us. That's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news, clippings, and more on this and every episode, hop on over to our website, ohiomysteries.com. And that brings us to tonight's featured Ohio musical artist. Theo's Loose Hinges is an eclectic, soulful, electric sound out of Columbus, comprised of Theo Perry, Kenny Caterer, and Jeff Arsman. The band has been together 12 years, and they say they are super anxious for this pandemic to be over so they can get back out there and start performing in person again. But they are nitpicking away, as Theo put it, on some new music in the studio. Tonight, we're featuring Summer Love, a song inspired by, well, new love in the summer. 
You can find Theo's Loose Hinges on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and they have their own website, theosloosehinges.com. Well, let's have another listen to Summer Love by Theo's Loose Hinges, and we'll see you here next week for another episode of Ohio Mysteries. Richard Serrett. Join me on Strange Planet for in-depth conversations with the world's top paranormal investigators, alien abductees, Bigfoot trackers, monster hunters, time travelers, alternative archaeologists, remote viewers, and more. As I was on the way to Area 51, I was stopping on the side of the road and just taking measurements, and I found this one spot where time slowed down by a fraction of a second. It's not supposed to do that. From the two big categories, animal mutilations and human abductions, you have to conclude that genetic material is being harvested. Well, I reached for a rifle and uh, I, I turned and looked and it was, it was already moving away and it was descending the bluff. Uh, there's no way any human could have went down it. It was probably a 75 degree angle straight down almost. 
On Richard Serrett's Strange Planet, we're redefining reality. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Do not go any further. Turn around. Go home.